Hi everyone, Pamela Log here, your host of the Energy Transitions podcast. If you enjoy listening to our bi-weekly podcast, make sure to hit the subscribe button and take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you're listening. This will help us spread the message and connect with our community. Thanks again for listening to the Energy Transitions podcast from Inlet and Friends. Fuel cells can be used for many purposes, and the technology is becoming a more popular solution, especially when it comes to decarbonizing hard-to-abate sectors. To learn more about fuel cell technology in an increasingly competitive environment, I'm joined by Caroline Hargrove, Chief Technology Officer at Cirrus. We explore the Cirrus solid oxide fuel cell technology and the record levels of efficiency being achieved. It was because of this technology that Cirrus won the 2023 MacRobert Engineering Award, which recognizes innovative engineering that makes an impact. My name is Pamela Larg, and this is the Energy Transitions Podcast. Caroline, firstly, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. And I'd like to say congratulations to you and the Cirrus team on winning the 2023 MacRobert Engineering Award. What is the award about and why did Cirrus win it? Firstly, Pamela, I can tell you we are so proud of having won this award. It's the most prestigious engineering award in the UK, and it's given to teams that have demonstrated outstanding innovation, but it also has to have a tangible society benefit and, and proven commercial success. So for us to have reached this after more than 20 years of developing our technology, you can imagine we're over the moon. And our technology is fuel cells and an electrolyzer. It's fully reversible in the same technology works in both direction. And it was recognized as the most efficient one that is on the market at the moment. Caroline, do you think, if we look at the timing of this award, that perhaps fuel cells are really starting to shine in the market and coming to the fore as a potential technology that really will aid us in our path to decarbonization? Absolutely. It's a technology that existed for some time. So this is not new technology. What we're certainly trying to do is make it more pertinent and economic to be able to be used much more effectively. And although fuel cells have been around for a while, they they haven't been adopted so much for all sorts of reasons. But if we look back, the market for fossil fuel it, you know, has been honed in for years and years and years. Replacing any of this requires effort also on the supply chain for making the fuel cells at an affordable price, but also ensuring that they are fit for purpose and they work long enough. And all of that tends to be uh, something that develops over years. And we're now seeing climate change. You know, we, we hear about it every day on the news and there are no silver bullets. And there is a need for all these different technologies to come to the fore now. And we're very conscious that our technology is 
part of a mix. It, it's, it's nothing magical about what we're doing, but we know that you need this type of technology if we are to achieve net zero. Before we delve into the specifics of the Cirrus technology, which is quite fascinating, I'd like to understand more about how the market is developing. Are there specific factors that have started to fall into place that it's fostering a market of development for fuel cells? I mean, if we take the hydrogen economy, which in itself is starting to come into play, uh, what are your thoughts on that, Caroline? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Pamela, because hydrogen is actually um, a key ingredient to for fuel cells. But if I start with the fact that our technology um, is also valid to create the hydrogen, is something that we started pushing about three years ago because we realized that in some respect we didn't have enough hydrogen to really help the fuel cell development. And and since our technology can work in both directions, we are pushing both because there are some applications where they're ready to have fuel cells in place, because let's make clear that there are differences between fuel cells um, types of technology. Some will only work with very, very pure hydrogen, and that needs a hydrogen infrastructure in place to really create adoption for the fuel cells. Our fuel cells are a lot more tolerant to impurities, and you can have less high-grade hydrogen as an input, but you can also run them with other fuels such as uh, biomethane, but also natural gas, which I know you'll say that's not um, CO2 uh, net zero. But actually, if you use natural gas in our, our fuel cell right now, you will produce a lot less CO2 and you can collect the CO2 that you're producing because it's in a very dense form using carbon capture technology. And actually, you can blend your natural gas with more and more hydrogen. So you, you're ready to be fully hydrogen using this technology. And I think this is what was missing in the market is there was just too many things that were waiting on other things in the market to, to happen in order to make this more usable. And what we need, because the, uh, the climate change is happening today, it's in our, it's always in the news, we need technologies that can start helping us today and we need to start adopting them so that the whole ecosystem adapts. And our technologies is actually specifically targeted uh, more at industrial application because I will say that that's the hardest to decarbonize and that's where we should put our efforts first. And that leads me on to my next question, specifically around hard to abate sectors. How do you see fuel cells playing a role in decarbonizing these sectors? Because how I understand it is that it's a really promising technology. Absolutely. If I give you examples of if you're manufacturing fertilizers, you need a lot of hydrogen in the process. And currently it's all grey hydrogen, so it's all it's ammonia and it is created via fossil fuel and the fossil fuel needs refining that's also very polluting so it's a very polluting process to get to but we need it we need fertilizers for food production and so on so if you even start with decarbonizing these sectors that are heavily reliant on this gray hydrogen and you start producing green hydrogen and put them into these systems 
and this is where our technology is is quite also applicable is we're running at around 600 degrees C can explain that a little bit more later but it's actually the type of temperature that these processes these big industrial processes run in and therefore you can be a lot more symbiotic to them so rather than developing technology that live on their own and I guess fully autonomously run we're thinking systems here in integration of our technology within a system that's a lot more efficient but it's also more meeting the needs of these hard to decarbonize sectors because ultimately they're 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 hard to decarbonize because you can't swap something in for something else normally there's a sequence of events like if you look at shipping shipping requires a lot of power for auxiliary power as well as for propulsion and we're proposing fuel cells for the auxiliary power because that's your first step but it's also the step where when the ships are at port you have to run your auxiliary power, even if you're not moving. Um, and that's enormously polluting for the ports. So you can already have a major impact by changing some aspects and eventually looking at uh, alternative fuels for propulsion, um, potentially fully uh, fuel cells as well. But actually the alternative, the auxiliary systems can be done at much less cost to, uh, to a ship than the changing the proportional system. So, so there are ways of starting to decarbonize these really, really uh, polluting sectors using fuel cells and electrolyzers. Well, that makes perfect sense. Taking the systems approach seems intuitive. And like you say, this is where Sirius comes in, in terms of the solutions that you provide. You have touched on some of the reasons why Sirius technology is unique. Tell us a little bit more about that. You know, you mentioned the temperature that it runs at, and please be as technical as you would like to be. Well, just in case anyone doesn't know what a fuel cell, I'll just briefly explain that you know what a battery is. A fuel cell is a bit like a continuous battery. So if you keep feeding it, um, say hydrogen, or or in our case, it could be a blend with, with natural gas and so on, you're going to continuously produce electricity. So it's not a finite, you'll deplete it like a battery, you'll continue to to produce electricity in a similar way. It's electrochemistry that is happening. So you're not burning anything. You're not producing uh, NOx and SOx that are highly toxic to breathe, for example. So already you're starting from a technology that there's no combustion. And the existing technologies in this area have been mainly at either low temperature, so like PEM and alkaline, or very high temperature. There's been solid oxide technology existing for a little while, but they were so high um, te- temperatures that they're very expensive to manufacture and they're very uh, brittle and, and not very robust. But the, the idea of running at high temperature is that you then become a lot more efficient. So we, um, over 20 years, this is not overnight, over 20 years, have been developing this technology that is a bit in this Goldilocks temperature range, which is about 600 degrees C, which may seem high, but it's actually very much kind of medium temperature because you can actually use steel as a substrate for your anode, uh, electrolyte and cathode. So essentially in a fuel cell, there's a sandwich of many of those. And by using steel, the manufacturing process is a lot simpler. 
or I should say at least a lot less expensive because you can also reuse parts that are say available in the automotive industry, for example. So you're not having to reinvent a whole system of how you build these type of fuel cells or electrolyzers. They become a lot more efficient than the low temperature uh, fuel cells and electrolyzers. So you're in this, this sweet spot where you can really make a difference. And as I mentioned, when you're in industrial application, efficiency matters because we're talking about, you know, if I look at a, um, you know, the sort of PEM and alkaline fuel cells, at best, they'll be running sort of 60% efficient. If you're, you know, if the stars are aligned and you're really, really doing well, you know, it's often a lot less, more like 40% efficiency. That's often been a criticism of, of using fuel cells that are not very efficient. So when you're running um, an SOFC, so a solid oxide fuel cell, you're starting at a minimum of 60% efficiency. But the good news is it's an exothermic reaction. So you're producing heat whilst you're doing this. And in many, if not most, in industrial processes, heat is part of what is needed. So if you're producing electricity as well as heat, so combine heat and power, for a lot of industrial application, you need both. If you need both, you're now 80% efficient. You're making a massive step up. So, and this is com combines to what I was saying earlier about having to be thought through as a system, because you need to think about using that heat. You know, then, then it makes sense. So, for example, one of our partners, Bosch, who license our technology, they've used one of our example that they manufacture of our technology to power and heat a hospital. And that's when it's helpful because you can power it and use that heat to heat the building and so on. So then, then you can realize that efficiency difference. And if you think in in reverse, so create electrolysis, then similarly, you start off with, you know, the PEM and alkaline will at best get about um, less than 70%, maybe 68%. Now, in, in electrolysis mode, it's very much the laws of thermodynamics, because what you're doing in electrolysis is you're breaking your water into your H2O into H2 and O by passing electricity through it. And that's been known for a long time. But actually, if you if you split steam, it's way more efficient. You can do that with a lot less electricity. So our temperatures require steam. You can't use steam for pen and alkaline. So the minute you're in that mode, you start so much more efficient. You're in the 80% efficiency already, and you can reach higher than this. You can reach sort of 90 odd percent efficient if you, you engineer it right and you're using your heat and keeping your system heated at sort of like a temperature that doesn't change very much, a thermal neutral temperature, so that you can run it continuously and efficiently. So that means that your electrical efficiency of, let's say you have um, three wind turbines running, you will create as much hydrogen output as if you otherwise had to use four big energy uh, sources like a wind turbine for a low temperature electrolyzer. So it's if you're constantly running, these efficiency gains matter because the, even though our technology is at the moment certainly a, a bit more expensive to manufacture, 
to run, it's so much less expensive that over a lifetime of five plus years, that difference in, in costs make a big difference. Your operational costs way outstrip your capital investment at the start. But you mentioned at the, at the beginning that markets are not really mature yet. And that's something that we feel we need to educate the markets in that you can't just look at your your cost of initially installing this. You have to think about running this over a long period. And it's difficult because it's new and in a capital investment at a time where there's there's a squeeze on everyone's cost, it's hard to digest. So so there is still an education process to happen because we have to amortize it over a longer period. We need to make sure that the green investment come in to help companies make these investments because the payoff is actually over you know, a few years and not an instant change. How do we change this mindset? There's an initial cost or capital outlay that is required. But at the end of the day, we need to make these investments I agree completely. I think there is hesitancy in the market of because most of these types of markets, they're not early adopters of technology. That's not what they are. They're they're very conservative. They're they're areas where they've improved over years. And so suddenly to be put into a situation of having to use unproven technology or very little proven technology, unsurprisingly, they'll be concerned and want to make sure that this is the right technology to use and so on. So this is where I think the US have done a very good job with their Inflation Reduction Act, where it made a big difference in the sense that you get tax incentives for going ahead and using these types of technology, including carbon capture which means you're reducing the risk of these early adopters. And as you said, we need to adopt now. So helping the end user or the middle user, because there's a chain of of people. So you may be someone making the hydrogen to then sell it to the industrial um, applications. Then we need to help them de-risk that investment. And that's something that has to be done as a, a full ecosystem. So I I agree. One, one thing I have to explain is our business model is a licensing model. So we team up with big companies because otherwise it would take us so long to raise the money, to build a factory, to make this. And then we'd have to do the same somewhere else and then somewhere else, whereas we can leverage the balance sheets of these big companies and especially their know-how in how to build and manufacture at scale and at volume, something that is not our core knowledge base. So what we concentrate on is to make sure that it can be manufactured. And here are all the different processes that you need to do for manufacturing. And our partners link it all together and make it really efficient at scale. They reduce the costs so that it can really be more adopted um, by their clients. And so it's co- it's a complex chain. And a lot of people are saying, well, why aren't you selling more? Why don't you want to manufacture yourself? And we realize to go faster, it's actually better that we don't go as far in that in that chain. And we team up with people who are really good at this. So Bosch are currently building a factory in Germany and Doosan are building a factory in, in South Korea. They're building at a scale, at a speed that are much, much better than what we would do being novices in 
manufacturing com compared to them. And therefore, the impact that we can have on the climate is greater for us, for a company our size. Now, I want to emphasize that although we're, we're, we don't manufacture, we're still 600 people. We're getting bigger all the time through what we're good at, which is the core innovation and technology. That is a really good segue into my next question, which is what you're good at. And I'm sure that the team really celebrated the success of this engineering award. What is this achievement about for you and the team at Cirrus? It, the reason it's complicated is electrochemistry is something that we're still getting to know and we're really doing all the way down to a nanoscale. A nanoscale is a fraction of the size of a human hair, all the way to the conversation we've just had, which is how do you make this happen in a big industrial environment? And so we need people who can do the macro scale as well as people who can do the minute nanoscale which is why we, we were so pleased to get this award because it felt like years of incrementally and then at time making a step improvement on our technology. But it's been a long time coming because it's difficult. Many times we hit some roadblocks, we found the solutions, we kept going. We kept at it because we had the belief that this technology was sufficiently unique that it was worth pursuing and investing in. So you might say we were pig-headed and continuing in this, but it shows that sometimes perseverance is what you need. Caroline, if I can ask you, in terms of research and development, I mean, this is an exciting space to be working in. There is so much potential for fuel cell technology. Where do you see the greatest applications being for fuel cells. And if you can give us an idea of some of the future plans for research and development uh, within Cirrus. Our research strategy covers many different areas at once. It can't be too linear because, as I mentioned before, you if you have a, a, a roadblock in one area, it's often solved via a, a variety of different routes around it and so on. But one way that we're certainly pushing more and more, and that's our use of simulation, digitalization, modeling, and AI. So for us, it's it's really starting to use that to help us not just improve how we make something and, and find out, say, if we can pick up trends in our degradation and so on. It's, it's more than this. We are trying to find and finesse differences in material compositions and interfacing one material with another. And we feel that AI has a role there to help us innovate in finding, I was going to say new materials, but it's not necessarily brand new materials, but variation, because there are so many possible areas to explore in optimizing how your, your material is is interacting with another one. And therefore, what's the best combination all in all in this? that this is where we feel that AI can really start helping. So these are quite new areas. We work with a number of UK academic institutions, as well as some abroad in Europe and in America, because we want to tap into this early knowledge. We don't know which one of these 
will actually make it into our technology. But we need to be abreast of what's going on because I mentioned before, we're a licensing company. That's our business model. And if we don't keep innovating, then we won't have new products that our licensees will want to continue to license. We need to have all the improvements coming in and so on. So even more so than if you were, we were to develop it ourselves. So it's existential for us to, to do research and development. So we, we push it. We have to take risks at in terms of where we put our efforts but they might not all make it into our technology directly, but indirectly the learnings are very, very important. Caroline, if I can ask you specifically, uh, you have really achieved some incredible things. Being appointed CBE in 2020, uh, announced as one of the top 50 innovators in the world in 2017. When you were a child, did you know that this is what you wanted to do? Were you going to grow up and, and be an engineer that changed the world? <laughs> I had no idea what an engineer was when I was a child. My parents were not engineers. And I think I was stubborn and I liked solving problems. And even at school, the teacher would say, well, you like math, therefore you could be an accountant. And I thought, well, no, what I like is solving problems. So I researched it myself and thought, who solves problems? <laughs> this is when I found out engineers solve problems. I thought, oh, that's probably for me. <laughs> so it, it purely because I, I didn't feel I fitted in other categories that I went into this into engineering. And I went into it thinking maybe it's not what I'm going to like. So I actually, when I took engineering I took an engineering degree and I combined it with a mathematics degree an applied math degree because I thought well I know what applied math is so therefore it's like my insurance and then realized I much prefer engineering because you were solving real problems in an engineering world you have to find a working solution so it's not just a theoretical one it has to get to something that works so that's one of the reasons also I, I try to go into schools and so on and try to promote engineering because I think especially girls might not have role models, um, hopefully more so these days than for me. I didn't meet a woman engineer till I was well into my engineering degree. My first lectures, they were all men. So it took a while to have these role models, but we all need them. And if I can inspire one or two girls to say, yeah, I like solving problems, I want to be an engineer, and that'd be brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and, and your experience with us. It has been such a pleasure. Pleasure was all mine too. Thank you. And thank you so much to our listeners for joining us. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this Energy Transitions podcast, brought to you by Enlit and Friends. Visit enlit.world for more episodes. See you next time.